Listening to Heart of Mind Radio for the New Millennium. I'm Katherine Davis. Stay tuned. Sinead O'Connor, all babies are born saying God's name. And I think that really speaks to the innocence of children when we come into the world as little itty-bitty beings, very dependent in the realm of physical. But more often than not, we come into the world intact as far as the nature of our being is concerned. I think we come with every expectation that we're going to be nourished by the mother and protected by the father, and our lives will grow up with these expectations. But often enough, our expectations as infants and toddlers and children are not met in some fashion by no fault. You know, everybody's in the same boat. So our parents were babies and their parents were babies and everyone gets impacted by the environment in which we arise and grow. 
So that has uh, some impact, some more than others, but there's an impact there. And I think it's really a key part of understanding that those infants and toddlers and children of various stages of our life still exist within our records, within our um, fullness of being, that we can go back to that space of being a child, being an infant, being a young adult, and begin to work out with that part of ourselves, that part of our journey, what may have been missing or what may have caused us to move in a certain direction. And we can begin to resolve some of the issues that may seem unresolved. What usually is a catalyst for taking that inner journey is having something out of place in our current existence, our current life, whatever stage we may be, be it as an adult, be it as an elder, be it as a teen. So part of understanding who we are is understanding where that perfect life born into this world, into this realm, how things might have gone amiss. And that's not to say that it's wrong. I mean, you'll be steered in a certain direction and it might be a wonderful thing. Like in my family, you know, a lot of the boys in my family line grew up into blue-collar careers or um, working with the hands. So there were plumbers and carpenters and people who could do and build things. And then there's a certain um, part of the males in my family who went into the police force. In fact, my grandfather worked for Grumman um, Aerospace. Of course, he wasn't a scientist. He was, you know, one of the maintainers. But I remember it being a source of pride in my family that he worked at this space in Grumman. And he had a way of wanting to ensure that all the men in the family had um, a trade. So all of his children and most of his grandchildren, for as long as he could maintain that, had a trade. And then I remember my uncles who learned or were encouraged to have a trade would teach the younger generation. It's a And it's a thread that passed through my family lineage. So it's not, I'm not speaking necessarily of a bad thing, though it can go bad if it's something that's not so tactile. It could be something more psychological or emotional. And I would say that in my family, there was that psychological separation between boys and girls. So in, in my family lineage, the boys were expected to be men. 
they were expected to hold jobs, they were expected to get married, they were expected to be able to support their families, and so on. Women, on the other hand, had the opposite influence. Um, my grandmother, who was a very sweet woman, was a very doting woman on her husband. And I can remember when he was going to Grumman, she would get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to make sure that she made his breakfast, and he would go off to, I think it was somewhere in Long Island at the time, and my grandparents lived in the Bronx. And then the girl side of the family were expected to be servers, you know, taking care of the man in the family, and didn't wasn't really anticipated that they would have a career of any kind or a um, a focus of their own. And I'm sure that this is a tradition that was passed down through some generations, but I happen to be born of a, the generation where there was the rise of women's liberation. I mean, I was a adolescent and teen when that was happening. But I took from that the cues that I had um, an equal right to be, you know, to pursue my own career and pursue my own dreams, and that's what I chose to do. So, there, you know, there's that kind of thing that influ we encounter influences. But also we sometimes encounter influences that can be psychologically undermining if you have a parent who is psychologically or mentally or emotionally unhealthy, then you can begin to be twisted in a way that can have a, a toxic impact on your life overall because the way generations work, that that kind of behavior would also potentially be passed down through several generations where the children grow up with the same level of biases and maybe uh, may grow up with a sense of insecurity or with the idea that they are worthless and don't have value as human beings. So I think it's really important that as we cultivate ourselves, we pay attention to our childhoods and the impact it may have had upon us. And maybe we can be very brutally honest with ourselves and find how those um, inherited behaviors, I guess you would call them, how they impact the quality of our current life experience. And that's just one of the ingredients that we can think about. And there are many other ingredients that, that flow into who we are in our current moment of existence because it's not just the lineage that came before us in terms of the traits we also have the influences of our environment and of the the 
realms of spirit, the realms of nature. So there's a lot that is around us that has an impact in who we are and how we perceive things and what kind of, I would say, access we have to a greater reality that we can rely upon in some ways so that we're not just simply only the carbon copy of our parents. We also have the influence of our teachers and friends, especially as young children, but also the world, the outer world around us. The environment, the the level of safety that we can feel within our environment and how that has a formative impact on who we are. I feel lucky to have been born many decades ago because when, when I was growing up, I didn't feel unsafe in the least. It never occurred to me, or my parents for that matter, that something untoward would happen. The world was in a much more innocent place and it was much less corrupted in some ways. You know, sure, there was wars as always and as there are now. There are biases and racism as there is now. But within the context of your daily life, going to and fro from school, going out to play, I, I was quite safe. I felt quite safe. And I can remember as a very young child wandering through what I thought were woods, <laughs> probably a lot somewhere, but, you know, they looked like woods to me. And I would wander around and um, pick flowers and eat berries off the trees and just had a grand old time um, in the in my earlier years. And so when I think back about having that having been blessed with those kind of influences, I find that as an adult, I am much more stable in my sense of presence and my sense of being. It never occurred to me that I couldn't take care of myself. It never occurred to me that I was, there were people hating on me. I mean, they may have been there, but I wasn't aware of it. I, I, people didn't during those times, generally speaking, or at least within my world, bring harm upon children of, of any kind. It wasn't about, um, um, you know, people kind of recognized that all children needed to be looked after. It was a time when parents would look after others' children, or if they saw another person's child getting in trouble, they would intervene. And it, though there is all kinds of biases and racism in the world, I grew up in primarily mixed communities of some kind of mix. Um, I remember when I was living in the Bronx at the time, it was black people, Puerto Ricans, and Jewish people. And when I was living in Long Island for a time, it was mostly white people and some black people. So I didn't really have a race consciousness so much growing up. I didn't think that 
there was that kind of a difference. You know, these things don't occur to us as young children. And so I, I bring that up because I think it's important for all of us to begin to go back into that part of ourselves that understood, that was, were able to perceive the kind of the world around us in a much more even-handed way though we wouldn't think of those tones, those terms as children, but it's true. And I can remember when I was started to venture more out into the world, junior high school, high school age, I really couldn't tell the difference that much between races. I couldn't understand what the deal was. So I could remember being on the train. I used to take the train to high school. And I could recognize, okay, this person is black, this person might be from India, this person might be from Europe. This, I mean, I could recognize that there was a difference, but I remember being confused because I couldn't really discern the difference. Okay, so you could say, oh, certain people have this kind of nose, and but then I'd see somebody else with the same kind of nose. Certain people have this kind of hair hair and then I'd see somebody else with a different kind of hair with the same hair but a different kind of person and I remember going through a period where I was just really confused not understanding what the deal was of course as I got older I began to learn the difference in terms of people's behaviors and I mean I I knew that they were old I knew very early that there were people who didn't like black people and there were black people who didn't like other people for whatever reason. But I never under—I couldn't comprehend it. I couldn't fit it into my young brain, the reasoning for it. And as I've gotten older, I've come to realize, well, actually, <laughs> there is no reason for it. It's something else that's going on that is kind of bigger than our fundamental humanity. It's much, much bigger. And so, and we get in some ways indoctrinated into these ideologies of resentment and hate and reaching the point of being willing to harm another person or to prevent another person from thriving because we feel somehow we would benefit from that behavior perhaps. But it is a difficult thing to really comprehend how it is that our world became so tragic. And I contemplate on those things sometimes because I feel that it's not just the world. We have to be mindful of being drawn into that and playing it out in how we communicate with each other and have relationships with each other, but also so as not to contribute to the overall madness that seems to persist and escalate. And as I've been going uh, into a lot of these 
thoughts and explorations, I began to understand a lot of what's missing in our lives. In some ways, our parents innocently steer us into a direction that's going to be safe and a direction that we're going to be able to provide for ourselves. And I suppose there are some parents who have more um, resources can literally provide much more for their children, but for the most part, that's kind of... If we go back to that, and begin to us as human beings across the world and um, begin to infuse some of this understanding in how we look at things and how we adopt our ideologies and our vantage points in the world so that we can look at the world freely and openly, and with an understanding that every person was once a baby in someone's arms, hopefully, or at least came into the world in a way that was in full expectation of being embraced and loved as they came into this world. So we all started that way. And when I look at a person with a deep, distortion. I try to remind myself of that so that I can, it helps me to take a step back and be more of an observer and to be less inclined to take whatever the situation is personally. A lot of situations in which we find ourselves in conflict it almost always has to do with, it could be a misunderstanding, but it also can be one of these psychological, emotional distortions that we develop through our life. And so I could spend a lot of time, and I do, <laughs> looking at history and understanding the dynamic of history. But I think what I've come to is that I find it really important not to live out whatever anger, whatever rage, whatever um, resentment and accusations as much as possible that I would hold for those historical events in perpetuity into the future because it sets up a kind of dynamic that makes it difficult to transcend whatever it was that may have occurred and is more likely to push us in a direction where the atrocities of the past or are more likely to be increased. And I think in a manner of speaking, that's where our world is in a state where because of holding on to not the information, we need the information, but the energy of it, the woundingness of it, 
that we are in some ways bound to perpetuate it. So just some thoughts. Uh, actually, I was going to go into my theme song, and I didn't do that, but let's play a little bit of Come to the River by Diane Reeves. One of the reasons I was um, also contemplating these ideas is because I'm always on an internal journey and seeking to bring my awareness to more expansive states. To me, that's the most fun thing to do. But I was also thinking about the situation in the Middle East, and I'm looking at the burden of a history of thousands of years playing out in reverse. It's like in one one time it's one group of people, this time it's a different group of people, but there's still a connection to the same narratives and to the same kind of, in this case, indoctrination. So it makes me wonder, and I'm hoping that this will be resolved without so many more people dying, but I think that one of the pieces that we as a collective, as the human race, have to do is bring ourselves to another level of understanding and being so that these narratives don't continue to occur. And one of the reasons we need to be proactive about it is because it's being fomented as a means of maintaining a kind of psychological control over masses of people impelling into conflict as a way of keeping the boiling, keeping the stew going of breaking down the human condition. And I'm not going to necessarily point fingers or ascribe motives, but this is what is happening. So even in the U.S., for the last 
even 20 years or so, there's been an escalating call for kind of a mass racial violence where people are being encouraged to live in fear of the other based on the theme that the other is going to come after them or you or me. And so it perpetrates and perpetuates a kind of ongoing suspicion of the people around us. And this happens in in layers. There's a layer of one group of people or racial group or ethnic group against the other. And then there's a layer of a family member against a family member. There's the layer of men against women and women against men. So there's all these layers of conflict that have been in a gradual stew, like it started from that more innocent world I was exposed to, largely due to the protection of my parents, but nevertheless, as a child, I was not exposed to a lot of hatred. And as the world has gone on, I see now that children are not safe from bias, you know, being perpetrated upon them. They're not safe from violence. They're not safe from their own parents, even in many cases. So I'm just contemplating what it would take to begin to encourage um, a space within each of us where we seek to level the playing field. There needs to be some compensation to the level of violence and anger and fear that is completely abundant in our world right now. What I've discovered as a result of moving into that inner space and reawakening that childlike understanding of the world, I've found that it helps me to bring a sense of peace in my own heart, a sense of compassion in my own heart. And I think that this is something that we can all do for ourselves. And in those instances, and we all have instances, in which we've been in some fashion hit or hurt or shocked by loved ones, it's important to go back to that and heal that as well through the compassionate understanding of our adult mind. So there's a way in which by entering the child perception, it begins to normalize our adult perception and reminds us and can remind us that there's not an evil person behind every body that we see. They're not evil incarnate. They're not bad incarnate. Whatever labels we may put on people, we can begin to strip those labels away and say, oh, wow, this guy's, I mean, you might, okay, this guy is funny, he has a sense of humor. 
this guy has a big temper. You know, you can you can recognize them for what they are, but not to classify and demonize and expand into the whole group, whatever the characteristics are we might be looking at. And then as the adult consciousness begins to taper off and really become aware that, you know, I'm annoyed by certain people's behavior, but it's, you know, let me, let's pull it back and put things into perspective. Then with that adult consciousness and that adult skill set, when we go travel back to the inner child, we can begin to have that dialogue with the wounded child, that part of us that shrank a little bit based on what somebody said to us. That part of us that was began to feel not worthy because of things we saw around us or felt disempowered in some way. And so that when we begin to reveal the inner child to the adult and the adult to the inner child, there's a way of pulling that together into a more wholesome package of a human being. And it's from that space that we can, in a manner of speaking, sprout out into greater realities to understand the dynamics of, of what's happening even on a greater level. So I, I tend to be a believing spiritual being but that believing spiritual beingness that I possess is not limited to deity. Um, there may or may not be deity. I don't, I don't actually know. But I believe that there is a sacredness present, and to some extent, um, until they get distorted and lose connection, true connection with whom we, we are as beings. But m the spiritual journey that I seek is one that takes me outside of the limitations of the world that we're living in right now, which is a physical world, to understand we are immersed within and enmeshed with invisible worlds that we can't see with our limited senses of the third, fourth dimension. Just like light, there are spectrums of light we can't see with our eyes. There are living organisms that we can't see with our eyes. There are thought forms we can't see with our eyes. And so just that alone helps me to understand the magnitude of the existence, the reality we are within. It's not just a neighborhood, a country, a world. There are so many more dimensions to who we are as beings. And in order to explore that, we have to conquer the fear that lingers within. I'd like to invite you, should you want to give a take on this, to give us a call at 212-209-2877. 
212-209-2877. I'm going to play a little bit of Sweet Honey, Sweet Honey in the Rock.
just about all uh, uh, areas that now exist in New York. And I must say around the corner was two houses of Puerto Ricans. We lived in harmonious settings, which brought me to this. And I'm going to think it out even further after this program. Why is it that children, and I was a young child growing up, going, I walked up uh, to certain areas I loved to walk. I walked from the Bronx to Manhattan just on a bag of potato chips <laughs> and uh, a little bag of candy because I loved walking. Why? It took me to different areas of New York. And I took all of this in. But while growing up, being that young child, I also had the privilege, the honor, of meeting such giants as Dr. Clark, Dr. Uh, Ivan Van Sertema, uh, 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 Malcolm X, El Haj Malik Shabazz. Okay? I've met so many, and they gave me fruit to eat and to grow from. And then I said to myself, why is this world where we can have, and to my mind, there are over 35,000 dead in Gaza. They just don't want you to know. Mm -hmm. And how can a people who were once victimized turn around and commit the crime of their torturers? I have a theory. I have, I have a theory on that because, actually, I... I, I take in a lot of media, and um, I was watching a, a thing where there was an IDF soldier was talking actually to um, um, a religious person of the Islamic faith. It was an interesting conversation. But this IDF soldier was young, probably in his 20s. They end up in the, in the army very young. And he was um, a psychological wreck. He was on maybe two or three different kinds of psycho psychological drugs due to depression and self-destruction. So he had been diagnosed a lot of medication. And one of the things he said is that they're raised on it. They, they're taught a certain ideology in schools, they're taught a certain kind of um, understanding of the world by their parents, by their teachers, by their religious leaders. And for a lot of the people, apparently a lot of the soldiers are in this state, not even from this war, from past wars and past atrocities. And so they, a lot of young people are programmed a certain way. These people, your enemies, you're superior to them. And one of the things he said to them is that when he was, they, he said, they, we tell our children that Arabs will be our slaves, which is a horrible thing. But isn't this very much what happened in other countries, like here when there was slavery? Children are raised in a certain way. And then when they were in the, the way the army was is organized is that they're organized as an oppressive force. It's not really an army in the in the sense of you join the army and defend defend yourself in battle against a comparable enemy. 
they were basically raised, the IDF, these young people were raised to be the gatekeepers, the slaveholders, the um, enforcers. And what the IDF has done, at least over the last 20 years, is terrorize people. So they would they go in and they terrorize the families and they um, they have keep track of them and they photograph them and they um, push them off of certain highways. You can you you can't use this road. You have to use that road. So they just it's basically a force. It's like um, on a plantation. Very often they'll take some of the um, stronger black people out to be overseers. And they become more brutal than even the slaveholders. There's a potential for that. And to me, that's look. To me, that's what has happened in um, Israel. And this ideology is not a Jewish ideology. the the um, The people who created Zionism. I don't have you know. You brought, I wasn't necessarily going to talk about the subject, but the people who created Zionism did so before the Holocaust. They were not religious. They were atheists, Zionists, that created this ideology that was folded into this country. But rather it being a country that honored the Jewish religion, it became one in which people were secularized and the ideology became a replacement for their core religion, which was, you know, their historic religion. And then in Israel, they have a system of separating the children from the parents in these um, kibbutz system, where the children are are um, inculcated with this ideology. So you have a generation after generation at this point of people who have been um, taught a certain ideology and taught a certain system of racism, of hatred, and fear. And so the whole, as far as I can see, the whole, at this stage, the Zionist ideology is about living off the fear of the Holocaust, which was a real thing. People have a reason to not want to have that, go back to that, or have that happen again. And the Zionist state was created uh, supposedly as a safe harbor for the Jewish people. But this ideology poisoned that and brought it into an ideology of hate. That's how I perceive it. And I, and I think that it's not just Israel. I think that's what happens in any place where you have these ideologies of hate. It has to be taught. You know, you, we've heard the songs. It, it has to be taught. Oh, carefully taught. Yeah, it's not something that's inherent to humanity. I don't believe that to be the case. And so, truthfully, I think the Israeli Jews are more harmed even than the Arabs in this instance. Because, and I'm not saying that to diminish what's happening to the Palestinians wholeheartedly for the freedom of Palestinians, but could you imagine waking up to the reality that you did what was done to you all those I mean, could you imagine the horror? And this is what I saw in this young IDF soldier. He was in a state living in a state of absolute horror once he realized 
what he had been participating in. So in a, even in a case such as this, in which the, um, the Zionist state, the Zionist um, ideology is not Israel, nor is it Jew, being Jewish. It's something entirely different. And it's, I believe, that the Zionist ideology is using Jewishness as a cover for what it is. So how much can it actually care about Jewish people? It doesn't. Therefore, if I may just say this, Mm -hmm. you see, as they have carefully taught their children, they carefully taught us as a people, our parents and our parents' parents, Mm -hmm. to prescribe or or, uh, depend upon one train of thought. Mm -hmm. And we were so busy, you know, it goes back to... (laughs) The, uh, 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 what's been so uh, uh, com- uh, so uh, commonly said, they give you the Bible, okay, and they take your land, they take your mind, mm-hmm. they take your freedom, they take your country. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I, I, I have, listen, I listen ex- uh, uh, to a lot of, of, uh, of, uh, events or, or happenings, shall I say, on the continent, Africa. And South Africa, I listened to their presentation mm-hmm. in the International Court, uh, what is it, International IC? Um, Justice, International Court of Justice. Yeah, I heard that. I heard both, uh, both the South African as well as the Israeli presentation. Right, I did also. And I, I said, you know, people are saying, well, oh, South Africa, wow, South Africa. They were brilliant in their presentation. They were factual, and they did their homework. All right. I'm going to let you finish. Um, I'm going to take another call, so I'll give you a minute to wrap up, okay? Okay. Mm-hmm. I just would like to say, we as a people all over this world, in all countries, we need to Sit down, examine that which is happening in the present, plan for the future, and above all, learn from the past. Learn from your history, and then decide which path you must take in Mm -hmm. order to preserve life, liberty, your freedom. Exactly. Thank you so very much. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Elle. Hello, you're on the air. Uh, yeah, as uh, El said, that was a wonderful program. I mean, the programs in BA are always wonderful anyway. Uh, and you had the, uh, you, I don't wonder why, basically, why human beings act that way. I understood pretty early in my life that human beings are capable of doing the most extraordinarily beautiful things or the most extraordinarily evil things. We animals, no matter, no matter what we think. Because I was 10 years old and there was this guy, uh, he's, um, his mother uh, did commerce, and then he went in, in the middle of the night and cut her throat so he can take the money. Mm. So I know that we can. And then he was trying to kill my father because he suspected that my father knew he was the one who committed the crime. But I've met so many human beings who, who, who do extraordinarily beautiful things, too. 
So, and I don't allow the negative people to really dwell in my mind. Uh, uh, and uh, I've always been in the mindset that there are more positive humans on this planet than negative ones. Because with the evil that the negative ones can do, if they were more numerous, will be in deep doo-doo. Mm-hmm. So uh, what, what's happening, as you said, uh, people who have been victimized and traumatized have a tendency to either uh, kill other people or uh, destroy themselves. As we know, a lot of soldiers who came, who went to all the predatory wars that the U.S. has been in, involved in, when they come back home, either they kill their mates or their children or they kill themselves mm-hmm. in any which way. So that's understood that uh, they are quite a few Netanyahu in the world, but there are a lot of other people who are very positive and, and help others. I, I've read something, I think it was on, on BAI wall, that there are two ways you use your energy. Either you pull people up or you push them down. Mm-hmm. So there are some, some human beings, they, they, uh, they are delighted about pushing people down, and there are some who are very delighted about pulling people up. Yes. We, we have to we have a war between those two those two energies all the time. Yeah, I, I yeah, absolutely right. And one but one of the things that also that I'm making a point of is that we have to take personal responsibility and become sovereign in our own mind. You're right. So that and that's because, why I don't believe you know, in any of these religions. Because mm-hmm. they, all they do is just uh, program people to do the the negative ones. Hi. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. Okay. okay. Hello? Oh, all right, I got to go. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for your calls. Uh, it's very true. And this is part of what I think it is to transform is to understand what's going on and begin to work towards the resolution of that. And the by stretching the understanding that we have for a situation as much as I do not like the ideology of Zionism, I think we have to be really, really careful because a lot of people are going to construe that as Judaism. So there's a way in which Zionism is going to create more anti-Semitism. And I think that we have to be very careful not to be drawn into that mindset. And also within our own um, tragedies of being used, abused, it's important not that we expand our capacity to be able to walk through that pain and not become that which inflicted the pain. That's the real challenge. We don't want to become that which created harm in the first place because that's how it's magnified. That's how it works. Because we carry it on to inflict on another. And the sad truth is, in great measure, that's being done because we don't have the psychological tools and understanding, but we're we're developing that, and going forward, it's going to be something we can do more of. And I can only conceive of that as being the way forward. So thank you for joining me. Thank you for calls. And we'll be back again on Fridays at 11 a.m. on WBAI. 
And also you can find this program on Saturdays at 6 p.m. at prn.live, the Progressive Radio Network. Stay tuned. I'll leave you with a bit more music, and then we go to Gary Null. Love of ours. 